It's time to become a member of Playvolution HQ and Exploration's Early Learning. There's a free option and three paid patron-level options. All come with free stuff and ongoing automatic training and merch discounts. For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron. That supports our work and you get premium stuff like early access to fresh podcast episodes. Go to explorationsearlylearning.com slash membership or click the link in this episode's description to learn more. All the cool listeners are doing it. On with the show. Inspired E.C. Halton. How you doing, Nicole? G'day. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I spent part of the afternoon making chocolate-covered bacon. Chocolate-covered bacon. You say that almost with disgust in your voice. I- I'm, just, I'm a bit disturbed. My nephew had cho- had bacon on pancakes the other day, and I thought that was disturbing. But chocolate-covered bacon, I feel like it's taking it to a really new level. A new level of delicious coolness. I don't know. It's uh, mate, look, it might work. It's that sweet, salty thing, I suppose. Maybe it mm-hmm. works. Do you do you you got something against bacon? Not really, no. But bacon's just like on its own, it's good. Uh-huh. I don't know that I what, could combine what about it with chocolate. chocolate. You get anything against chocolate? No, I love chocolate. Okay, well, if, if this is two delicious things put together, um, but is the bacon like crispy? Do you have to cook the bacon crispy? No, it's raw. No, of course. <laughs> no, but like, is it crispy bacon or like, so, you know, like you can cook it's it not, in a no, you can't, bacon. No, not floppy bacon. You got to have good crispy bacon. And see, what I do is after I cook the bacon, put it in the freezer for a little bit so it's nice and cool. Oh. So, so the chocolate sets up real nice. And then, and then back into the chocolate between layers or back into the freezer between layers of chocolate. And so I build up two or three layers of uh, chocolate on the bacon. And then it's a, a and nice. And is it just like ordinary milk chocolate? Yeah, no, it's actually keto chocolate. So it's, uh, right. it's uh, made with it's it's like cocoa and, uh, and coconut oil. And, and, uh, and, and so it's kind of low. So you make it yourself? Carb. Yeah. Yeah. I've yeah. done that with the coconut oil and um, cocoa before. That's not too bad. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm sold. I might have to road test it. Yeah, well, I, I was thinking about adding uh, adding coconut flakes to it, but I'm not sure Tasha likes those, so oh. I didn't do it in this batch. I actually used to make, I haven't made them for a while, and maybe it is a combination of the sweet, salty thing, but I used to use coconut flakes and then make the chocolate and combine the two into like these little piles of coconutty, flaky chocolateness, and then sprinkle sea salt on them and then freeze them and just eat them straight out of the freezer. Oh, that they sounds good. yummy too. Hey, listeners, this has been the Child This is not a food podcast anymore. <laughs> this has been our recipe corner. Uh, actually, when we're when we're done recording, I'm gonna I'm gonna surprise Tasha with the uh, the uh, the chocolate covered bacon I've made because uh, excellent. Uh, that's what my lady likes. So 
keep the romance in the uh, <laughs> keep the romance alive and chocolate covered bacon. So we're back with uh, another another podcast based on a an article Nicole wrote for the Inspired EC website. Uh, five myths about infant outdoor environments. Did I get it right? Yes. Yes. All right. So so let's work through these and uh, and uh, okay. see, what, see what you got. So. Outdoors is so definitely one of our things um, at Inspired AC. We're big outdoor people. Um, I spend most of my time outside when I can. Um, and so when we visit early childhood services, we definitely take a lot of time to notice the outdoor spaces that children are in. Um, and the infant ones tend to be the shittiest of the lot. Um, there's, there's a lot of really bad environments anyway, but the infant ones are the worst. Um, but I think there's like reasons for that I think there's reasons why people struggle with infant spaces um, but I think those things are myths so the five myths so the first one is that small is fine doesn't matter if it's not a big space because they're only little I think that's the first myth is that small people need small spaces that's okay so you can't just uh just put them in a little a little uh corral holding yard <laughs> no they need they need space they're developing big body skills and you know like they're learning to walk how hard is it to learn to walk if you've got like a two square meter i don't know what that converts to but you know like a little space so we're not we're talking about infants and toddlers yeah you could say infants and toddlers so often here we'll find that um it depends on the type of service but a lot of services say have might have a birth to 12 months sure. kind of age group so that tends to be the worst of the lot I find as they get into that toddlerhood people realize that they need a little bit more space but I think when we're looking at often you know immobile or limited mobility kind of age the people think well okay it's fine to have a small space because they don't really need it they're not you know often yeah. running like yeah, the preschool. That, that small space might do for under six months but yeah. once you get beyond six months there's there is a, a, a lot of moving going on there and uh and and boy crawlers are going to crawl and scooters yes. are going to scoot and yes. uh, and if they if they are locked into a tiny little space there's not not really a lot of a lot of uh, uh square footage to to do that so yeah it really limits that that need for exploration and you know you you want them to be able to to move in different ways and to work out how to get their body from one place to another and it's really difficult if there's nowhere to go and, and if you if, if you're a mobile infant you want some space to be mobile in and yeah. and i think you know i think a lot of infant rooms the the space thing is is a problem inside as well because there's so much baby gear Yes. In, in a lot of programs, there's not really a, for for the, that age. There's not a really a lot of move around space inside, and yeah. then to have it restricted outside too is is just kind of exasperating that problem. And I know, like, I'm not sure what it's like over there, but so here in Australia, we have regulations around the space, the physical space that needs to be provided. So um, for outdoors, you know, it's just around around that seven meter square meter. So what's that? seven square meters probably about oh maybe 18 feet maybe 
I'm trying to picture how tall my husband is in meters and feet and he's like my reference point. Um, anyway, it's like it sets out the amount of space that needs to be provided per child. Um, but what we're finding is happening that even though those things are a regulatory requirement, they're actually being um, overlooked in some instances, particularly in like urban areas where new services are being built and they're being built, say, on a rooftop of a big building and they actually don't have that space available, they're getting exemptions to still operate because, well, we need childcare, so let's just put it in anyway. And so children are missing out on those bigger spaces, even though it's supposed to be a requirement. So I find that really frustrating. Um, yeah. Is that a thing over there? Do you guys need to have, or does it depend on the states? It of course depends on the state. So, but but it's pretty standard. So seven seven square meters is what you said. Yes, there so that's that's about that's about twenty three square feet. Um, yeah. Most states that I'm aware of have a regulation around. It's it's usually around thirty five square feet per child, yeah. which is uh, a little bit. What's the computer say? That's about ten and a half square meters yeah. so it's a little bit more but um i get again with infants probably some states have smaller requirements and, yeah. and there are some recommendations that that want more but it is kind of a limited and and people i mean people look for ways to cheat on that just so they can yeah. because because infant care is so in a lot of places so limited that yeah. they don't want to risk not having the slots by being too too um, stringent about about enforcing that regulation. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So small is not fine. I'm busting that myth. Small is not fine. We need what's big spaces. Next, what, what's the next the one? The next one um, is that it should be all flat surfaces. Well, Nicole, if 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 it's not flat surfaces, somebody could hurt themselves. Somebody could, and somebody should. Somebody will. <laughs> But they should. It's like that, you know, how do you navigate uneven surfaces if you've never been on an uneven surface? And, you know, it, it comes it comes down to some of those like physiological, biological kind of things, you know, around the muscles in the feet and, you know, all of those sorts of things. And it links into, you know, I think we talked before about being barefoot, that, you know, infants need to be barefoot outdoors and they need to be barefoot outdoors in a space that's not just synthetic surfacing you know it's like safety surfacing and it's completely flat and there's nothing else and like I think you know okay we're not putting them on the side of a you know mountain like we're not you know we're not setting them up to fail but we also need to be mindful of the fact that they need to navigate different surfaces you know so it's navigating things like grass or dirt or sand or you know wood chip or you know synthetic surfacing or whatever it happens to be but a variety of surfacing, things that are a bit uneven and that require the body to move in a different way, um, things that, you know, offer a little bit of challenge, particularly for those little ones who are starting to walk and, you know, then sort of building on that, being able to, you know, go over a little bridge or to, you know, step over a log or whatever. I think they really need that. Yeah, and and one of the I think it was my, uh, well anyway one of the trips to Australia I was visiting a program you guys sent me to and I think it was I think it was a playground that uh, inspired EC Help Design and uh, it was kind of a tire structure and it's it's kind of a tire pyramid so the tires are like filled with dirt and packed and then there's there's layers and up and I'm watching this little one just just learning how to walk 
this little guy going up there and um, crawling most of the way, kind of, you know, the way they do, and then gets to the top and, and stands up and does this, this, the, that little bounce that they do when they're, yeah. when they're excited. And, and the caregiver was, was, she was there within arm's reach, but, but totally letting the, the child have that experience um, although, I mean, if the kid would have fallen backwards, she would have been there to, to grab yeah. him up, but, but stepped back enough that he had the, had the freedom to have that experience. And, and I mean, even at that age and, you know, when they're starting to walk, that's, you know, right around a one, I don't exactly remember the age of the specific child, but that's, that's definitely in this infant category. And, um, that's such a p- empowering experience and, and way too many programs lack that you're, you're completely yeah. right. I, I visited a program in, uh, in Colorado here once, which is, you know, we keep our Rocky mountains, part of our Rocky mountains in, in Colorado, which I mean, <laughs> we keep it there. yeah, substantial mountains. Right. But this program had, had, uh, built, built playgrounds and they, they didn't, their infant program, they had in, intentionally built in some, some little berms some little dips and waves into the ground and uh and and the licensing people or maybe the program no it was the program administrators they were on a military base and they came in and, and told them they needed to level it uh mm-hmm. because it was it was just too risky and i think that's so frustrating we actually a playground we did we built um like it was a flat area and so we built a, a hill into that space and it was just a little mound in the middle of the infant space but watching those infants, like, you know, navigating that and getting up to the top and then down the other side and rolling down it and, you know, all those sorts of things, just so many skills that were being developed. And the thought that that might not have happened, you know, if it was just a flat space, none of that actually would have happened. I find that really frustrating, you know, and I think we want children to be confident and capable and then give them the opportunity to do that. You know, they've got to have the opportunity to build those skills and to to have those sense of achievement. And yes, they are going to fall over. Like it's just a given, they're going to fall over. Um, But that's how you start to self-risk assess too, is, you know, that if I do it like this, I fall over. And so next time I might do it exactly the same way and I fall over again. But then next time I might adjust just a little bit and hey, look at that, I didn't fall over, you know, and that sounds like complex thought process for, you know, someone who might be under 12 months of age, but that's what's happening. Well, and, and I mean, they're, they're, they're physiologically built for falling over at that yes. age. So yes. it's, it's almost as if they're, they're designed to be bendy and, uh, bouncy. and bouncy when they're, <laughs> when they're that age, uh, you know, you know, when you get to be an old guy like me, you worry about falling down because, you know, the hips are getting brittle and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I always say that there comes an age and I'm not sure at what point it happens, but I feel like I'm nearing it where you go from, she fell over to she had a fall. Yeah, it's very different <laughs> having falling over or having a fall. I feel yeah. like when you've had a fall, if someone says, if someone ever says to you, Nicole had a fall, then I'm old. That's it. I'm officially old. old. I've probably done a hip or, yeah, (laughs) but I've probably like done a hip or, you know, pop something out or whatever. It'll be horrible. So (laughs) so children need to do that. The, the importance of those of those unlevel surfaces, I mean, it all goes back to everything that uh, that Angela Hanscom writes about in, yes. in, in Balanced and Barefoot. It's it's, you know, the the brain and the nervous system are, are pretty much just one thing. The brain, yep. the nervous system exists pretty much to, to give the information to the brain. 
and those unlevel surfaces and the the rotation when they're rolling down the hill and and all of the all of the uncertainties of that unlevel surface is all food for that for that hungry hungry brain that is helping them develop all the all the physical skills that they're going to need for the later cognitive stuff so absolutely um, having unlevel surfaces on your infant infant playground is is really pre-writing and pre-math activity yeah and i know even like watching we do a lot of camping and watching um my kids navigate across like rocky riverbeds and you know the the water's kind of trickling over it and there's kind of those round river stones and sometimes they're you know really hard to navigate and even as an adult sometimes they're hard to navigate and they require like i know when i'm trying to walk across a rocky riverbed it's like it requires a lot of core strength and it requires balance and whatever i'm watching my kids do it as like infants and toddlers I find really interesting they're just built for that you know and yes they have the occasional stumble but they're built for it I've watched like friends kids who hadn't kind of grown up doing that try to master that at a much older age and find it really bloody hard because they're just not used to it you know I think the younger we have children exposed to those sorts of you know experiences the better we build those skills really early on. I was uh, watching my watching my pups the other day. We're, we're we're walking this place that's it's not exactly a cliff, but it's a really really steep hill, and they're playing on the side of it, kind of chasing each other. And they're they're used to. I mean, most of their time is spent on on uh, more more uh, horizontal surfaces, and this is this is a lot closer to vertical. And and they think they're 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 freaking dog ninjas with the way they <laughs> jump and leap around. But they get onto this unle- unlevel surface, and they're like, whoa! And and one he he loves throwing himself down. And he kind of does a shoulder roll and gets on his back, and then and then rolls around. And he tried to do this on the side of the hill, and then he slid down about ten or fifteen. <laughs> And it was just delightfully joyful for me to watch. And the yeah. same goes for babies too. That's it's fun to watch them throw themselves in their back and roll around. And it get is too. I guess that's my point. It um, is. What's the next one? All right, next one. Um, the next myth is that we can just bring the indoor toys outside. So whatever um, plastic pop up crap we've got inside can just go outside. Wrong. we don't need that stuff outside we don't typically need it inside either to be honest but I think we miss the whole point of being outside it's like the point of being outside is that you're outside not that we're just in another location with the same crap toys uh shit Nicole um this morning I recorded with Lisa Murphy and and we did a whole episode that we entitled we entitled outside scissors about uh, about bringing outside inside stuff outside and changing the location of stuff. And now you're yeah. telling me the exact opposite. So um, <laughs> what I, do I got to go back and delete that episode? No, don't delete the episode because there's value in all things. My issue is that we just kind of transplant what's happening inside just to outside and while and look I don't know what you guys talked about on the episode but there's some merit in that sometimes when you know particularly if like I'm a big fan of running an indoor outdoor program so children can go between the indoors or the outdoors depending Mm -hmm. on where they want to play that doesn't work in every space so sometimes you're going to go outside and you're going to have children who um, want to draw or they want to you know do something that's typically what we have indoors I have no issues with bringing those things out for children yeah, but I think more about the the shitty plastic baby toys yeah the things that just like one day I swear I'm going to be sued by a baby toy company for disparaging their well-known name but anyway in the meantime I think 
we just bring that stuff out to entertain babies. Whereas for me, I think I look at little ones outside and I, I used to take my kids outside all the time when I was at home when they were really little and, you know, we'd just lay a blanket on the grass and just kind of watch the clouds and watch the birds and, you know, play with a lump of dirt or like you make the most of what's already out there. And I think where people come unstuck with that is when they've got those small spaces with no uneven surfaces, they haven't got any nature. And so they have to bring the shit out because what else do we do? And so I think that's where you then go back to what does our outdoor space actually offer children that you can't get inside. You know, it's like making that space differentiate from the indoor space. Sure. And, and what well, maybe, maybe you should bring that crappy stuff outside so that, um, so that it'll maybe, maybe it'll blow away in a, in a storm or maybe a, a, a rapid wallaby will come in and, and run away <laughs> with it or maybe, maybe. A, a squirrel or a possum over here would be something like that. It'll disappear. Yeah. Or some ruffian, some thugs may come and <clears> steal it and sell on eBay and then you won't have it anymore. That's and then right. That would, solve, that would solve both problems. Well, you just get rid of it just get rid of it just be done so, so um, i'm saying you're, you're you're more in favor of the natural stuff the uh yeah, and, and the leaves and the pine cones and the dirt and the mud yeah and, and you can still have other things outside but you know i'm and we will talk about it it's, i think it's the next thing but you know other loose parts and you know like i don't know some big bowls that they can put stuff in and tip stuff out of and you know just keeping it really simple, but using the environment that you have. Yeah. Yeah. Good. What's the next one? So the next one is that loose parts are for older children. So that's, I think, a myth that a lot of people have that you can only have loose parts for older children. Um, And that's just not true. It's just that the loose parts are different. You know, I think I'm not necessarily having, um, you know, big planks of wood that children can move around when they're six months old, but I'm having more open-ended things still, you know, as I said, it might be the bowls and it might be some jugs and things that they can pour with and things that tie into that kind of heuristic and schema play. You know, if we know, and I, I think that's a, such a big gap, particularly here in Australia, it's a really big gap in our early childhood professional knowledge is that not enough people understand the way that infants and toddlers play and explore the world. So there's not there's that lack of understanding around heuristic play, around schema play. And so I think once we know that and we go, okay, we know that children of that age like to transport, for example, they like to move shit around, then cool, let's put a couple of wheelbarrows out there or some little wagons or some bowls and boxes and baskets and things that they can actually just move the stuff around so they can get you know, the seed pods that we've got on the ground and they can fill an empty or they can, you know, move something from here to the sandpit or, you know, it's actually in tune with the way that they play rather than just trying to add a whole bunch of crap into that space. Yeah, your, your counterpart, uh, Tosh, did a, did a session the other, the, a couple of weeks ago that I was part of. And, and she was talking about this, you know, with, with that infant toddler age, you know, they, they go through that stage. And again, it's a, it's a trajectory schema, but where they like to throw stuff. Yeah. And so maybe in your infant toddler room, you don't want to have the big, heavy stuff um, because maybe, maybe there's. Maybe they will throw it at each other. 
yeah, there's other stuff yeah. you could have. Now, I mean, you want them to give them, have them at that age, you want them to start start playing around with the, the opportunity for some heavy work. But when they're in the middle of, hey, everybody in this room wants to throw shit, um, have stuff. <laughs> we're, not throw, we're not throwing planks. Yeah, yeah. And so, and yeah. Like, the, I think it's recognizing that, like, even some of that, you know, like, okay, they want to throw things, like, big scarves and pieces of material and stuff are great outside because they can throw them around and you know especially when you're throwing like lightweight scarves up into the air and they can watch them fall and you know like there's those little things that you can do differently that you might you know it's I think it's adapting to where they're actually at right now you know what's interesting to them right now and I think when people talk about infants and toddlers it's like oh they don't really have interests Actually, they've got a shit ton of interests. It's just that their interests aren't dinosaurs and trucks. Their interests are how does shit move? You know, like how did this move over to there? What happens when I tip this out? What happens when I fill this back up? Like it's those really simple base interests, but they're interests nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, take it, have a, an eight or nine month old and sitting uh, some pots and pans and a wooden spoon in front of them yeah. is is a very delightful thing. And I mean, that's all that's all loose parts. So mm-hmm. so that kind of stuff where they can they can bang on stuff and make that noise. And it's kind of learning about cause and effect relationships. And it's kind of auditory stimulation. And there's yeah. there's a lot of that going on with those kind of materials, too. And and where you can have, you know, you, you've got the empty the empty kettle or the empty pan that can be a drum one day and it can be something to fill up and dump out the next day. That flexibility of, of infant toddler loose parts is, is really important too. Yeah. It's just keeping it simple. I think. Yeah. All right. The last one um, is that they'll just eat nature. So we shouldn't have any. Um, I, I can remember being in a service and they said, um, I said, oh, you've got some beautiful gardens. And this was in their preschool sort of age group. And then I went into the baby space and there was like nothing. There was nothing that was living except the babies. Um, but other than that, there was nothing that was alive. And I said, oh, I said, you know, I thought you might have had some gardens like you've got in your other space. And they said, no, the babies just eat it. So we don't have it. And I'm like, plant stuff that's edible? Like plant stuff that's edible. And they said, oh, and if we have flowers, they just pick the petals and so then we don't have flowers anymore and I'm like well they do but plant something that grows like crazy you know plant um for us here you know daisies grow like crazy so plant those plant dandelions plant you know a whole bunch of like edible mint or you know those things that are a sensory experience that if they're going to eat them which yes they will then it doesn't matter uh, listeners, I'm a, I'm a big fan of plant planting mint on the uh, early learning playground because uh, then, I mean, it's it's great as a sensory experience, as a taste experience, a smell, uh, a scent experience for the kids, but also you have mint for for garnishes for cocktails during staff meetings. Uh, well, that's you can, important. You can make uh, you can make uh, uh, mimosas for the staff. So yes. you get you, get, you two win, birds, win. one stone. Yeah, win, win, win with mint on the playground. I know this is completely right. And and the other thing is um, being exposed to, I mean, just the dirt um, yeah. is, is good for them because there's there seems to be an emerging body of research that says that's how they build their, build their strong immune immunity. systems. And, yeah. and so if, if you've got a, a resilient surfacing poured in place, rubber mat 
playground surface and that's all that they're touching they're they're not having that opportunity as well and and the other thing is kids exposed to to animals uh uh, are, are again building that immune systems and, and helping yeah. them uh, avoid things like asthma and allergies and those kind of things is what the research seems to indicate. So um, if you're creating that more sterile environment, you're not giving them the opportunity for, for those valuable things. Yeah, and that's exactly right. I know um, the service that Tash and I used to run, our kids spent most of the days outside in the dirt and you know then someone had come to you with a big slimy earthworm in their hand and you know we had um chickens and the kids had gone you know collect the eggs and pick up bloody chicken poop and you know all of those kinds of things well, not wait, many of my kids bloody, got sick. bloody chicken poop no not bloody just like bloody australian yeah but not yeah. blood related no sorry I mean, that I... was these that was the australianisms coming out um but yeah, like they were always kind of immersed in that kind of dirty, gritty natureness. Um, mm-hmm. We used to go out on bushwalks and like there was always that kind of element of things. And we very rarely had sick children or sick staff. And, you know, I I had a friend at the time who had a child in another service and it was one of those very sterile like no nature at all, no dirt, no, you know, they had a sand pit, but it was like one of those, you know, highly manufactured looking sort of sand pits. There was no wildlife. There was, I mean, bugs wouldn't have even dared to land in their playground, like just wouldn't happen. And yet those children were sick all the time. Like there was always outbreaks of, you know, gastrointestinal kind of viruses. There was colds, there was flus, there was, you know, like hand, foot and mouth. There was like all these things that's like, man, those kids are sick. And there was a lot of kids with allergies. You know, there was a lot of kids that were allergic to a lot of things and had a lot of asthma. And we never seemed to have that in our service. And I think, you know, it really, I don't know, it just highlights that. And I think the research backs it up. And yet still people are afraid to do that with children, particularly with infants. They're afraid to let them get dirty and you know, it's like, oh, gosh, we can't have dirt in the infant space because what if they put it in their mouth? It's like, well, big whoop. We'll, like, clean it. Like, give them, give them a rinse out with some water. They'll be fine. Like, you know, I mean, it, not, it many, not many eat it and continue to eat it. They'll put it yeah, in their it mouth. Doesn't, it doesn't taste good. It doesn't taste good. I can they, remember they Tasha's, Tasha's son, Oscar, when he was, like, oh, he was crawling and they had in their her backyard, they had all these little rocks in their garden and Oscar would fill his cheeks up like a chipmunk and he'd have both cheeks filled up and Tasha would be out there trying to like get all these rocks out of his mouth. And in the end, she was like, why do I bother? Like, he's just going to keep filling his cheeks up like a chipmunk. She said, he's not trying to eat them. He's just trying to fill the cheeks up. And, you know, I think children innately keep themselves fairly safe. And yeah. yes, we do need to keep them safe, but I think there's a difference between keeping them safe and keeping them, you know, overly cotton wooled where they're not getting that that sensorial connection to the natural environment. You know, there's all those sensory input kind of things that are important, but then there's also just developing that affinity for nature. And, yeah. you know, we want children to grow up into people who want to save the world and protect us from climate change and whatever, and yet we're not prepared for them to go out and actually be in that world. It's like, how do you protect something that you've not actually connected with? You know, you just don't. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the sensor integration is a big part of it when you've got the different surfaces, the the dirt and the mulch and the and the rocks and that kind of stuff. It's it's all opportunity to to feel those different textures on your on the surface of your skin. And that's, again, feeding that nervous system that feeds the brain. Yeah, even it's funny as as we're recording, I'm in our office and outside I can hear like multiple birds in various locations and um, yeah, and all different types of birds. And it just makes me think like just that being outside and being a part of that does things for the brain and for the sensory system. And I know um, Angela Hanscom, when she was out here a couple of years ago um, doing some talks for us, she was telling us that um, in some pediatric occupational therapy clinics that she'd sort of worked with, they were actually using recordings of Australian birds in nature for people to listen to with headphones to help with some of the sensory processing stuff. And she said, you've got that like right outside the door, you know, it's right outside there. She said, and then people are going and having to listen to that on headphones. And, you know, she said, isn't that sad that we can't just go out and, and do that and actually just be in, in the nature. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think the, the, the big, uh, the big takeaway here is, is infant program, Outdoor play spaces need to have the the variety and the flexibility and the the novelty that that we kind of want for older kids as well. Yeah, and that's it. It's you know it's not about dumbing it down, but it's about making it age appropriate and you know de- developmentally appropriate. Where are they at right now? What what skills are they mastering? And you know whatever, and we'll kind of tailor it to that. But it's also about keeping it simple. You know, it doesn't need to be. We don't need to have a whole bunch of toys outside and we don't need to, um, yeah, I don't know. We don't need to go over the top with things, but we need to use what we have, use the space that we have, you know, make the most of the natural environment and, you know, keep the play kind of simple and open-ended. Yeah, yeah. Any final thoughts before we wrap it up? No, I think that's it. That's it. Well, listeners, we will be back soon with another episode. You need some more Nicole in your life? Go to inspiredec.com and click around. You'll find her. Back soon. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.